Go ahead and grab your Bibles and your outlines and turn to the book of Matthew. We continue in a series that we've entitled Upside Down Kingdom, Lessons Learned from the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter uh, 5, verses 21 through 26. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can grab the Pew Bible in front of you and you can find our passage on page 810. Page 810. We're going to look under the subject matter of anger management. And uh, we're going to learn uh, a little bit how God has called us to deal with the issue of anger and how God views it. And uh, my time's a little bit abbreviated today. Uh, we have the blessing and the opportunity uh, to invite the children's choir to be with us. And they're going to finish off our service today with a wonderful kids program. I know the people in the first service absolutely enjoyed it and you'll enjoy it as well. So let's get right into uh, God's Word uh, this morning. So I'm going to ask that you stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue to learn that it's not just simply actions but also our attitudes uh, that are important to God and we're going to see what he has to say uh, through uh, his son Jesus Christ this morning in Matthew chapter 5 verses 21 through 26. You've heard it that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and judge, uh, and judge to the guard and you to be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray. Father God, we ask your blessing on our time, on the hearing, and the reading, and the teaching of your word. Father, that we may apply it. There are so many truths for us to hear this morning. I pray that we would receive it and recognize what you have called your followers to do, how to live and how to act even in this world of sin. Lord, I pray you'd speak through me in a powerful and clear way this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you know it, and I'm going to be honest and truthful with you, but you and I have anger issues. We have anger issues, and maybe we may not even know that this morning, but it seems like more now than ever before, we are a people who are filled with anger. In fact, one of the uh, most foremost uh, uh, anger management consulting firms stated last year in their annual report that more than one out of every five Americans has an anger management issue. Now this is true even according to the Federal Bureau of Investigations that tells us last year more than 25,000 homicides took place within the United States. The most common reason were arguments that took place within the home. 29% of all homicides took place within the home. Now to put that into comparison, only 7.6% of all homicides were gang-related. We've got anger issues. Studies show us that 22% uh, of all divorces take place as a result of anger-related violence. 79% of all violent children will have witnessed hundreds of forms of violence between their parents. 
And it's because of this that we create even new words for anger. In 1997, which seems like a long time ago, but it's not that long ago, we coined a new phrase with regards to our anger, and we called it road rage, getting angry in the car. Now, why would we have to create new words with regards to our anger? Well, it's because of situations like this. In Atlanta, Georgia, a two-year-old toddler was shot through the neck by an irate motorist who was engaged in an argument over a road incident with the toddler's father. In Denver, Colorado, a 51-year-old man used a semi-automatic pistol to kill a 32-year-old cyclist who had cut him off on the road. In Cincinnati, a 29-year-old woman cut violently in front of a 24-year-old pregnant woman and therefore then slammed on the brakes in an irate gesture following her anger about the younger woman's driving. As a result of that, the mother-to-be would lose control of her car in a violent accident which would kill her unborn child instantly. We have got anger issues. Now sadly, in our world today, we find it that we are those who struggle with being mad with being angry. In fact, far too many of us have not learned much when, since when we were born. It has been said that we were born coming out kicking, screaming, and crying. And for many of us today, including some of you, you still act the same way as the day you were born. You're angry. Now, some of us are angry at different times, and it's okay at times to be angry, but we need to understand how we are to be angry and where we are to point that anger towards. Now, some of us show anger in a lot of different ways. The intensity of our anger, how we deal with it. You see, some of you blow up when you're angry. Others of you clam up. Still others of you express your anger fully with all kinds of fervor, while others of you repress it. You push it down into your lives. And here's the thing, dealing with anger in those ways are not beneficial. And here's the thing, as Christians, as Christ followers, anger is an issue for us as well. I heard in a message not too long ago that the number one reason for church conflict and people leaving the church is because they become angry over preferential things. Now, I did the unthinkable this last week in our small group as a gregarious and happy-go-lucky guy. I told my small group, in all honesty, that anger is not something that I find myself falling to all that much. Yes, I'm susceptible to it, but because my personality is so laid back, it's easy for me. Uh, in many ways, not to become angry. I have a long fuse. When you say that, I want you to know something. The, the devil loves that. Because let me tell you about my week. Three times I was in the grocery store in a 20-item or less aisle, and the person in front of me was buying the whole store. And something as, as simple as that made me angry. We're doing some uh, work at our house, and I will tell you, you want your blood to boil? Try to in, uh, insulate your house with cellulose blown-in insulation at 2 o'clock in the morning and see how angry you get as a result of what's going on. This week has been an angry week for your pastor. And I'm going to believe that you've had some bouts of anger this week as well. Now, Some of you, quite frankly, will say, well, I have the right to be angry. And it's okay to be angry. Well, yes, it is okay at times to be angry, but King Jesus gives us when it is okay to be angry and when it is not. In our passage this morning, I love how Kent Hughes, pastor and commentator on the scriptures, uh, sums up our text. He says that the Old Testament law condemns murder. But I, Jesus, say 
that if you are angry without cause, you will receive a fiery hell as well. What powerful words Jesus is sharing with us. Now, we have been learning that Jesus has been telling us over and over again that he did not come to abolish the law. He didn't say, okay, it's all right to murder someone. Just say you're sorry afterwards. But what Jesus was saying was, not only is it wrong, and not only is the law correct that murder is wrong, to literally or physically kill somebody, to take their life, But Jesus says, I'm going to expand that. I'm going to give you the full teaching of the law of Moses. Not only is it to kill with your hands physically or with a weapon is wrong, so it is to murder in your heart. So it is to say ungodly things of anger towards others around you. Now we need to understand that if Jesus says that there is hell to pay, if you will, When our anger is uncontrolled, we need to ask the question, how then do we show our anger? When do we show it? And whom do we show it against? And to do so, I want to do uh, look at three quick points this morning. If we're going to understand what Jesus is talking about in our text, and to make sure that as Christ followers, we are living as he's called us to live, then we need to first of all look at a biblical synopsis surrounding anger. We have to ask the question, what does God's word say about this emotion? What does it tell me about when and when and when can't I, when can I and when can't I show anger? When am I sinning in my anger and when am I a- angry in a righteous way? To do so, we need to understand that the Bible talks very specifically about two types of anger in its contents. The first one is what I'd like to call spirit-led anger or a righteous anger. That is that the Bible tells us that even in God's perfection and his holiness, that God is a God who gets angry. And we need to understand that the Bible says in Numbers fourteen eighteen that the Lord is slow to anger. Now we need to understand that, yeah, he may be slow to anger, but there are times, there are moments that we see that God was filled with anger, that his wrath boiled over, and that he expended that anger towards people. And so there is a time, there is a place where we can be like God and still be angry. We know the story of Jesus in the Gospels, where Jesus comes into uh, the a temple, his father's house, a place that is to be devoted towards worship and prayer, to be dedicated to the things of God. And what Jesus walks into is an absolute carnival, where people are making money and, and using it for profit. They're doing things that have no ministry focus whatsoever, nothing to uplift the poor and to help the needy, but to become something where the, the temple at that day was used for self. Jesus becomes angry. Now, I want you to notice, I, I saw the video, the closed captioning video uh, of, uh, of Jesus in that time, and I want you to just act it out for you. He came in and said, come on, guys, what are you doing you know, you shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, I'm really angry with you guys. This is not the kind of house that God wants. No, let me tell you something. That's not how Jesus did it. The Bible says that Jesus threw out the uh, money changers. He threw out the rabble rousers. The idea there, listen to me, I'm going to help you out. He shot putted people out of the temple. He got angry. And his anger was not sin because the Bible says he knew no sin. 
And so if Jesus was able to show that kind of passion and that kind of controlled anger, then we should be able to do it as well and not sin. There's a couple things we need to know about this kind of anger. There are three things that I want you to understand about spirit-led anger. Spirit-led anger is commanded at times. Ephesians 4.26 tells us, be angry, but do not sin. That phrase, be angry, is a command. Some of you are hallelujah right now. I am commanded at times to be angry. Hallelujah. This is awesome. I've got three boys at home, and God has commanded me at times to be angry. Amen. Close the book. Let's close in prayer. But we need to understand what kind of anger does God allow for me to have? When is anger not sinful, in fact, righteous and commanded by God? And when is it called out and rebuked by Christ? We see that Christ is talking today about an anger which he rebukes, which he reprimands, which he condemns. Sadly, many of us are angry, but not in the commanded manner or towards the right objects. We're missing the point. We're missing the command. Notice that a godly and righteous anger... And spirit-led anger is one that is always under control. Nowhere do we ever see God throwing a temper tantrum. He doesn't get on all on the ground and start weeping and wailing and screaming and doing that. No, God is always measured in his anger. The Bible says he is slow to anger. The idea of that slow is a long fuse. That long fuse is a measured fuse full of warnings, full of consequences that will come. The idea here is I don't want to be angry. I'm giving you opportunity to change your ways. And if you don't change your ways, my anger will boil over and this is what will take place. Now, if that is how you explained yourself to your children or to your spouse before you got angry, then you're leaning more towards a righteous anger than an unrighteous one. But let me tell you, I never explain myself in that way to my children. I just jump to what's, what's going on in my heart and my mind. And that means I am angry. Listen to me. My name is Dad and hear me roar. And I'm going to believe that many of you find yourself in the same spot. Godly anger is that which is under control. Proverbs 25, 28 tells us that if a man or woman cannot control his emotions, including anger, that we are like an ancient city without walls. There's no protection. The Bible says that in our anger, be careful we do not sin and do not let the sun go down on our anger because we will give the devil a foothold. Some of us have not given the devil a foothold, but a yard hold. We've given him a mile hold in our lives because we can't control the anger in our hearts. We need to be controlled. Notice God's anger is always aimed at sinful circumstances. We never see God angry over the small stuff. We never see him angry over preferential things. We never see God angry over inconsequential things. God never would be one who would be angry over the time it takes to get through a checkout line. Or to get angry because your kids didn't clean the room. Or to be angry because something didn't work out the way you wanted it to. God got angry over the big stuff. He got angry. And what many theologians say is that God's anger is a judicial anger. And what I mean by that is, in essence, the jury uh, came out and said, yep, God the Father, you've got every opportunity and every right 
to be angry. And there are moments in our life, brothers and sisters, where you and I have every right to be angry. But in that anger, even if it's the most righteous anger, be careful because there's a slippery slope that we could walk into sin. And so it's aimed at the right things. One commentator said that we're not angry enough. One pastor and commentator put it this way. Some of us ought to learn how to express a little more righteous indignation about some of the things that are going on in our country and in our churches and in our schools. We ought to, not, we ought to be angry about some of the things that our children are being exposed to, some of the trends in our society which is being promoted, and some of the things that come waltzing into our home through all forms of media. We must be like God who has a holy anger and yet in that anger does not sin. This is the right kind of anger for every follower of Christ. Now here's the problem. I don't believe a lot of us were righteously angry this week. Maybe some were, but I know there was far little righteous anger in my emotions this week and a lot of sinful anger. There's the second one, sinful anger. Now, the Bible has much to say, and this is what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is condemning sinful anger. And I'm going to assume that many of you this morning fall under this heading and not the former. And so where does it begin? Notice what he says. You've heard it said that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. We got that. Everybody know? I want to see a show of hands. How many know that murder's wrong? Let's see it. If anybody doesn't raise their hand, uh, make sure you don't shake my hand at the end of service. Because I don't want to make you angry and think that you can do whatever you want to me. Everybody knows the rabbis were teaching during that day that murder was wrong. And so everybody got it. Okay, So, so what is wrong is I can't grab somebody by the neck. I can't grab Richwood by the neck if I'm angry with him and kill him. Okay, Here's the thing. I couldn't kill Rich. He's far too strong for me. Okay? But I can't do that. I can't use a weapon. Everybody's got that. So the rabbi said, hey, you can't kill people. Okay, we got that. Jesus says, hey, there's more to the commandment to get to the heart of God with regards to that commandment. It's not that I can't just put my arms around someone and kill them, take their life. But I can't even say things in my anger that are hurtful, that will uh, harm the individual, And that because of that, I need to understand what Jesus' words have to say about this sinful anger. Notice, the first thing we need to understand about this anger is it begins in the heart. It begins in the heart. In Matthew 15, Matthew 15, 18 through 20, listen to what Jesus says about what comes from the heart. But the things that proceed out of the mouth, we'll talk about that in a moment, come from the heart. And it's those things from the heart that defile a man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. These are the things which defile the man. So listen to me. The next time you get angry, don't point your finger when someone says, well, why did you say such hurtful things? Why did you react in such a way? Well, he made me. Or she made me by the foolish things that she did or he did. The person didn't make you angry. Understand this. If we are going to show a righteous anger, number one, we get angry because of what's going on in our hearts. 
And it's not someone else's fault. You cannot blame your anger on anybody else but yourself. And so you have to ask the question, it's not dumb things that people do that make you angry. It is your decision to choose anger and to choose sin. Now notice that what is in the heart never stays in the heart. And what he talks about in the heart is, the, if you will, the mainframe of human emotion and existence. And so what happens is, is the anger, some of you say, well, that's okay. I'm angry, Tim, but I'm going to keep it in my heart. I've got evil things to think about someone, and, and they have wronged me, and I'm going to believe bad things. I'm going to uh, think bad things about them, but it will never come out. Here's the problem. The Bible says that's just not the case. Notice in the Bible in Matthew 12, Matthew 12, 34 through 37, it says this, how can you speak good when you are evil? Listen to what Jesus says. For out of the abundance of the heart, you start thinking these things, you start thinking evil thoughts about people, hateful thoughts about people, it doesn't sit there. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So that which begins in the heart now proceeds, notice the second uh, bullet point there, it proceeds to hateful speech. And notice what Jesus says. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. We got that, Jesus. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everyone who insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is giving us some level of example of what's going on here. And what Jesus is saying, first of all, is he says, okay, I want you to know that conflict is up close and personal. He uses the term brother. Now that word brother does not, he's not talking to a family, a group of people in the Sermon on the Mount that are a family, nor is he talking to the church. The church has not been yet established. Jesus is talking about our brotherhood as people of humanity. And he's saying, whoever you struggle with, you better be careful because in your anger, you're sinning a sin that is of equal value to murder itself. Now notice how this gets fleshed out. This is important. We understand this. Jesus tells us that our words matter, that our thoughts matter. And Jesus says, first of all, in the ESV, it says that if anybody is angry with his brother, he'll be liable to judgment. Are you angry with someone today? God says, I've got a word for that. Notice he says that that anger then proceeds to insults. That word insults there is an Aramaic word uh, for raka. And the word raka is a word that's hard to translate. And, and it, no doubt the people of Jesus' day knew exactly what he was saying because no explanation is given. But this is what commentators and scholars believe raka meant. It meant to be an empty head, a numbskull, a nitwit, a blockhead, a bonehead, an idiot. And what Jesus is telling us is, is that he's concerned about how we talk about other people. And this is an amazing standard. God wants us, listen to me, to treat all people, all people, your wife, your kids, your co-workers, your neighbors, your friends, even acquaintances, even people you don't know, even your enemy with the utmost respect and honor. Now this word was used to cut someone down to size and to say that they had no worth from an intellectual standpoint. But notice he goes on and he says in the text, and whoever says you fool, 
will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus uses the word moros. Moros is where we get our word moron from. The idea here is not of an IQ deficiency, but the deficiency of man's condition or nature. The idea here literally, listen to me, when we call someone a fool in this way, commentators say it is literally saying, damn you to another. The idea here is that in your unhumble and unproductive opinion, that the person you are angry with has no value whatsoever. That the person you're angry with is a waste of space. Now you say, why in the world would Jesus even care what we're thinking or what we're saying? Here's the thing. You want me to get mad as a dad? Start telling my children that they're good for nothing. Start telling my children that they're a waste of space. Now why would I take offense to that? Because I had a hand in not only their creation... But I had a hand in their upbringing. And when you tell me that one who is so close to me, who I've had a huge part in their existence, is good for nothing, then I'm going to take full offense to that. And what happens is when we become angry and we allow that anger to start in our heart, start spewing out hateful speech, we begin to tell the created and the creator that they're both lousy. And so when you become angry, whether it is at your spouse or at someone you've never met before in your car, and you do something that shows that, you, you think about that, you're saying both to that person and to our God, you blew it, you made a mistake, God, for making that moron. And when you do that, you cut down God's providential goodness by his creative hand, and you begin to say to all, God makes mistakes. And what Jesus is saying is, is this is just as bad as murder. You see, sadly, too many of us have not only said such things about others, but we think them all the time, and we do so with all kinds of people. Here's the problem. Thinking or saying sinful things is completely, was completely okayed by the Pharisees and the rabbis of Jesus' day. And the people had to come and understand that as long as you didn't lay an angry hand on someone, you were okay. But Jesus says for Christ followers, it has not just to do with your hands, but your heart. How angry is your heart this morning? You see that hateful speech that Jesus says is just like homicide. It's just like homicide. Oh, you may not go to jail for thinking what you're thinking, but the Bible says, listen to me, we will be judged for every careless thought and every careless word that is uttered. And those careless words and those careless thoughts are angry thoughts and words against others because we think that they're no good. It's just as bad as homicide. It's an affront to God. So what do we do? The Beatitudes help us. The Beatitudes remind us of a couple things. You want to not be angry in thought and in word or in deed? The Beatitudes tell us, be poor in spirit. Recognize you are a spiritually broken and dead individual before God. And that will allow you to be patient with other spiritually dead and bankrupt individuals. Remember that we are to be merciful. We are to be reminded that we have offended God. We have angered God in our sin. We have angered other people with our sin. And so when people begin to anger us, we should be quick to show mercy. We're finally told that we are to be peacemakers. And peacemakers are those who pursue peace. 
But how in the world are we to do that? Notice Jesus helps us with some steps to biblical peacemaking. There are some steps. What are we to do when someone hurts us? What are we to do when someone wrongs us? Jesus paints a picture in verses 23 through 25. He paints a picture of someone in first century Jewish worship. You see, in Jesus' days of worship, to go to worship was different than you and I going to worship. It's easy for us to go to worship. We drive our cars to a parking lot, we walk through uh, a foyer, we grab a bulletin, we sit down, we're ready to go. Some of us have had no thought about what we're going to be a part of. Some of us have not prepared our hearts at all. Jewish worship was far different. There was all kinds of rituals that went on on your way to uh, worship. You would go through the Psalms of Ascent as you prepared your heart for worship. You would get to the temple. You would make sure you had an offering. And once you got into the physical building of the temple, there were many rooms that you would work your way through as ways of worship, preparing your hearts. Jesus says, after you've gone through all that, which would take hours on a Sabbath to do, When you got to the final, the pinnacle aspect of worship, the altar, you're there, you've got your offering, you're ready to go, you're ready to place your gift at the altar. And Jesus says, at that moment, after all that preparation, after working through all of that, you remember that someone is offended with you, or you're offended with someone. Jesus gives us, after all of that, a game plan of what we are to do. There are four commands he gives. Number one, leave abruptly. Leave abruptly. The idea there is to drop everything and go make right. And some of us, day in and day out, Sunday after Sunday, we worship, we pursue God, we we, we, uh, sing praises to God, and we minister, and we know that someone has issue with us, or we have issue with somebody, and all the while we never leave to go and make right. Notice, leave abruptly. Then the text tells us, go quickly. The idea there in that term, go, in uh, verse uh, 24, is a word that speaks to go with great haste. That word is used of the shepherds who saw the angels, and quickly they went with great haste to find Jesus and his father and mother just as the angels had foretold. They stopped, they left what they were doing, and they ran to where the angels told them to go. Reconciliation is something that we leave what we're doing. Listen to me. Worship is secondary when there's a broken relationship between a brother and sister. Because God says, I don't want to have a relationship with you. My fellowship with you is not going to be any good until your horizontal relationships are where they need to be. The Bible says, how can we say we love God and hate our brother? And so reconciliation with our brother is of the foremost importance so that we can worship God with a clear conscience and be ready to receive from the Lord what he's going to give us. And so we need to, with great haste, It is do not pass go. Go straight to to, uh, where God has called you to. You get there and you seek reconciliation. So leave abruptly. Go quickly. Be reconciled. Be reconciled. There's a story of a man named Alvin Strait who at 73 years of age heard a message on the Sermon on the Mount. And he was reminded that and convicted that he and his brother had been unreconciled for years knowing that God condemns this type of anger, he was cut to the heart. 
At 73 years of age and due to illnesses, he was impaired from driving. And so what does Alvin Strait do? Seeking to do as much as he can to be reconciled with his brother, he begins the trek of 300 miles from his house to his brother's house, from Iowa to Wisconsin, on his riding lawnmower. Alvin Strait got it right. You see, the Bible tells us, as far as it depends on us, live at peace with all people. And we need to understand that. We need to be reconciled. That means stretch out as far as you can to get reconciled with the people around you. And then what are you to do? Come back. You're to come back and worship with a clean heart and a pure conscience. That's what God has called us to with regards to peacemaking. Now, as I close this out, we need to understand something that I think Max Lucado does a good job of saying. As far as I know, he says, this is the only time God tells you to slip out of church early. Apparently, he'd rather give you, uh, I'm sorry, apparently he'd rather have you give your olive branch to another than your tithe to him. If you are worshiping and remember that your mom's hacked off at you for forgetting her birthday, then get off the pew and find a phone. Maybe she'll forgive you, maybe she won't, but at least you can return to the pew with a clear conscience. Our horizontal relationships have massive effects on our vertical relationships with God. So what do we do? I want to close with something. I wasn't going to take a lot of time on it, and I won't this morning at all. But I want to help you with some practical ways of peacemaking, of conflict resolution. Some of us uh, really are afraid to death of conflict. The best way to illustrate how we respond to conflict was seen in the movie Apollo 13. I know it's based on a true story, but I'm not going to assume that the movie paints that picture. But when Jim Lovell, Tom Hanks, uh, who's playing him, utters the famous words, Houston, we have a problem. There are two responses in mission control. There's a conflict. There's a problem. One of the NASA directors says, this is the worst thing that could happen to NASA. It will ruin us forever. To which another man, a director of NASA, then says, uh, with all due respect, sir, I believe this will be our finest hour. I want you to understand something that we as a church have adopted in our view of conflict. We do not see conflict per se as a bad thing. Oh, it's not helpful at times, but this is what we know. God is bigger than conflict. And when conflict comes between two people, it is the finest hour for God to receive glory, for us to show grace, and for us to see how God is going to lead his people and his church. So how do we begin to deal with conflict? We accept it as something that's going to happen because we're both sinners. It's going to take place. And it's an opportunity for us to show the love of Christ and to live out the scriptures. So how do we begin to do that? I want to give you seven steps to a strategy for conflict. And I'm just going to say them. I'm going to want you to think them through and work through them as homework from this. So you have conflict with another person. How do you make right? Number one, always address those only who are involved. Address only those who are involved. When you start telling other people about your anger, you're going to begin to gossip. So deal with the person. Go to that brother or sister who has wronged you. Number two, in your conversation, avoid words like if, but, or maybe. Those are denying words that keep you from speaking the truth in love. Admit things specifically. Husbands, we're lousy at this. 
Make sure that when you offend your wife or offend your children or offend someone, hey, I'm really sorry. Please forgive me. Be specific. I'm sorry that I did A, B, and C, X, Y, and Z. Please forgive me for those things. Be specific about them. Acknowledge the hurt that you've done to somebody. When you offend someone, recognize. Don't be like, well, why are they making such a big deal out of it? It doesn't seem like a big deal to you, but you weren't the offended one. So make sure that you acknowledge the hurt that comes. Notice next, accept the consequences. Accept the consequences. You offend someone, there may be restitution to pay. It may be monetarily. It may be that you've lost some respect or trust in the eyes of others. Accept that. Endure that discipline like a good soldier. Ask for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness. And and, and when forgiveness is asked, listen to me, those who are offended, when forgiveness is asked, that means you no longer hold it against them. You don't hold it over their heads. And finally... You alter your behavior. It means that repentance has to be a part of it. David understood that. He said, first of all, God, in, uh, before you I sinned, before anybody else. Against you alone did I sin, Lord. Let me get that right, and then let me go fix the relationships that I have with others. It acknowledges a repentance and an altering of your behavior. Brothers and sisters, we're going to be angry. And we are going to learn how to deal with our anger or our anger will control us for the rest of our lives. Jesus says when our uncontrolled anger goes unchecked, it's as bad as murder. And if that's the case, as Christ followers, we need to order our attitudes and order our actions so that we, in every emotion, including anger, can bring glory and honor to God. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and Lord, I pray that you would speak through the words that have been shared. Lord, I pray that as we uh, hear the the voices of little ones, Lord, we're going to hear a message of love and a message of peace and a message that uh, brings goodwill towards all men. These are themes from Scripture about that first Christmas. And Lord, they go in line that instead of being angry, instead of speaking words of hurt and hate, that we as Christians are called to extend love and peace and mercy. Lord, we are told that even in points of anger, that when we need to speak, we are to speak the truth with love. So Lord, I pray that you would empower us to do so. Empower us to speak words of love, not words of hate. Not to be filled with rage within our hearts, but to see that you are a God who uses his anger in a measured way. Let us be measured. Let us be calculated in how we allow our anger to be seen so that even in our most angry moments, we may bring glory and honor to you. We love you, Jesus. We're thankful for your words. We give you now the opportunity to change our lives so that we may glory and honor in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.